to Daniel City Cash Chicago. Francis Glesner Lee was from one of early Chicago's most prominent families living on one of the city's wealthiest blocks, but she was more than an heiress. Glesner Lee was the mother of forensic science. Producer Simone Alisea tells us more about this fascinating figure ahead of a celebration for her life tomorrow. It's Thursday, March 24th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. I am walking toward the Glessner House on Prairie Avenue in South Loop. Just a beautiful morning. It does kind of feel like you're being transported back to the 1800s. It's like this pocket of immense wealth. You have to imagine this was like, if you can make it to Prairie, you know, you've, you've really made it. The Glesners lived in this large stone manor from 1887 to 1937. It has to be the front, 1800, South Prairie. There's a gigantic door here. Let's see if I can get inside. Hi. Simone talked with Bill Tyre, executive director of the Glesner House. This is actually a really good room to start in because we actually have a lot on display. And what we like to talk about is how she really impacted and changed the field of forensic science, which at the time was known as legal medicine. And it was just evolving. There was no professional training for police officers, medical examiners, um, when they had to investigate a scene of unexplained death. And Francis Lee was a a very good friend with the medical examiner in Boston. And he used to share his frustrations that he felt a lot of uh, crimes were not solved correctly, wrong people went to jail, that sort of thing, because there was just no method for investigating. When we say that, like, what were they doing if they weren't like what, what was happening back then? Well, they would do things like we would never think of doing today. Like they would come in and immediately start moving things around rather than recording exactly how they found the scene. You know, they would move the body. And one of the things that Frances Lee always said in her training was that often uh, the police officers would come in with a hunch. And so the tendency was just to find things that supported what they thought had happened. So if they thought it was, you know, the drunken husband that murdered his wife, they would just look for that not realizing that she may truly have just fallen down a flight of steps on her own. And so he might have gone to jail because that's what they thought happened. She felt that investigating death scenes should be professionalized like a lawyer or a doctor where there's actual training and you learn um, the science end of it and you learn the legal end of it and you put the two together, which is why it was initially called legal medicine. So in the early 1930s, she came into a large inheritance from her uncle and she decided to use that money to found the first Department of Legal Medicine in the United States, which was at Harvard University. And in addition to that, she started hosting seminars twice a year at Harvard, but she realized that in order to train someone in investigating a scene of unexplained death, they had to have something to physically look at. And in the absence of an actual scene, what she came up with was the idea of creating in miniature death scenes that they would then study. Was she doing miniatures before she started connecting that to, to crime solving? Or did, did the interest in crime solving come first and the miniature idea came later? 
So the miniatures were something that she had been working with for decades. Um, in the early 1910s, she had actually created a full-size, inch-to-the-foot scale model of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Her parents were two of the founders of the symphony. And so it was complete with all 90 musicians, their instruments, their music stands. It's quite extraordinary. It's actually still owned by the Chicago Symphony. It's in their archives. But the nutshell studies of unexplained death, the models that were used for the training, this was by far her largest undertaking. Uh, she hired a full-time person to actually build the rooms and the furniture. She would do all of the smaller pieces. She would dress the, the corpses. And then there would be amazing detail when you think about the fact that when the police were studying these, they were looking through a piece of glass. So they could not actually touch or move anything, but yet the doorknobs and the keys in the doors actually worked. There was a tiny little mouse trap in one of the rooms that if a tiny little mouse had stepped on it, it would have actually gone off. And so she said that she felt it was important to make the models as accurate as possible so that the police would respect that these were serious models for training and not just seen as kind of like dollhouses. And so, and of course you have to remember at that time also, there were no women whatsoever in the field. So the fact that a woman was really moving this forward, she also had to kind of get past that barrier that men would respect what she was trying to do. Can you tell me what we're looking at here? Yes. So um, she lived in New Hampshire by that time, and she was the head of public education for the uh, state police there. So in 1943, they appointed her a, a full-fledged state police captain. She was the first female to be appointed to that position in any state in the United States. And eventually, as you'll see that we have on display, um, nine states and the city of Chicago all awarded her the status of captain. And so this was, this was really groundbreaking at the time. And so once that happened, she could actually go and visit a crime scene. But it was not purely honorary. This actually gave her full, full rights, just like any other state police captain. Uh, we have a photo showing her making the miniatures. And as I say, she was meticulous in what she did. For example, the corpses, she felt that, you know, if somebody wealthy dies unexpectedly, the police are all over it. They, they, they put people on the, on the scene and they try to find what happens. But if somebody who's poor, um, you know, perhaps a, a prostitute or something like that, if they die often, they were not given the same level of attention to try and find out what happened. So she would do things like when she would dress them, they would actually have tattered clothes and she would actually take the fabric and she would wash it multiple times or she would actually wear it for a while so that it actually wore down. Uh, they would have full underclothes even though nobody would ever see those. So that's the sort of detail she would go to. So I love, I love the photograph of her working because you really understand just how precise she was making everything. Yeah, you can kind of see her with, um, if I look very closely, uh, maybe a pair of tweezers and some, some cotton or some kind of fabric that she's adding to clothing. Um, there's a, a little chairs, a spindle, looks like building some kind of scene in a home. And she's like got no magnification here besides her own eyeglasses, right? Like you see people working on miniatures now and they've got those like, like those dentists uh, magnoscopes with the lights. Yes, that is correct. So she made these models over the course of about 10, 10 12 years. 
um, kept adding to them. And it was said that each model cost about $3,500 to make, which at the time she was doing them was the equivalent of an average middle-class home, regular house, full scale. So you can see how she really used her resources to do this. It would have been hard for anybody else to do this or for the police to do this on their own, but she had the resources and she felt it was important to do. I'll let you take the, the, the lead of where we, where we, where should we go next? <laughs> yeah. So let's go up into the main part of the house on the first floor. Yeah, so when we're standing in the main hall here, you start to get a sense of what was very unusual about the house. Her, her parents were groundbreakers in the sense of designing and building a very unconventional house. And when it was built, it was not well received by the neighbors. Most of them did not like it. They called it the fortress, the jail. It has this very heavy rusticated stone on the exterior. Just how how wealthy were the Glessners in Chicago society? Yes, that's a good question because Mr. Glessner responded to that a few times. Um, he considered himself, as he said, moderately successful in business. Now, the Glessners would still fall into that 1%, but he saw the really wealthy people as the people like Marshall Field, George Pullman, the meatpacker Philip Armour, who were all neighbors here on Prairie Avenue, he saw them as the real wealthy people. Um, where to next? Let's step into their library. Okay. So the library um, also, again, really represents her parents as individuals. In the other large houses that would have been on Prairie Avenue, uh, they would have all had a library. But the big difference was in those houses, the library was very much the man's room of the house. It's where business would be conducted. It was often a very dark space, uh, that sort of thing. So what you see in the middle of the room is this very large, what is known as a partner's desk, because obviously they could both sit and work at the desk at the same time. And uh, the top of the desk is 40 square feet. It's a huge piece of furniture. But people would have really noticed this when they came into the house, because to have a space for Mrs. Glessner in the library is not something you would have seen in comparable houses elsewhere. So again, very, very specific. In fact, you don't see gender-specific spaces in the house at all, because when they would entertain, for example, the men and women would stay together. They wouldn't separate after dinner. So it's just another example of, of how the house and the environment was very different. That's so interesting. I mean, between sort of building gender equity <laughs> into the home, I mean, is there any indication as to like what prompted or what drove the Glessners um, to sort of this progressive state of mind at that time? I mean, that, it's pretty, that, that's very, very progressive for the time. Yes, it is. And it's hard to get a sense of that from their background. They both grew up in very modest kind of middle class households that were, you know, very traditional for the time. Um, I think what happened was they, they were a really, they were a perfect match for each other. And it's clear from Mr. Glessner's writings and, you know, the correspondence and that sort of thing. Um, he had a real deep respect for his wife. He respected her for her mind, her creativity. She was a very talented craftswoman. 
And so again, it's it's creating that environment that you know I think just helped Francis Lee later in life. Lee is her married name, so she also married. I mean, is there any indication that her marriage was equally sort of happy and and had a sense of equality there? You know, it's interesting because her marriage ended up being exactly the opposite. Uh, she married at the age of nineteen. Um, he had three children, and the marriage was not successful, so she eventually divorced um, in 1914. And what her son said many years later was that her husband did not support her creativity. There's a part of me, like, I'm walking through, and it's so interesting to see all of this and hear all of this, and I feel like I'm learning a lot. But then there's also a part of me that's kind of like, there's sort of a feeling I have that just, I, I think about, like, the stories we lose when you are not like the Glesters, and you don't have the the means that they had. Yeah, so I think what's interesting here is, you know, for me, the fact that they were very wealthy is not the interesting part of the story at all. They're very, very interesting, innovative people. You know, had they been a middle-class family, they could have been, you know, their story would have been just as interesting and just as relevant today. Um, you know, a lot of people leave after the tour and say, oh, you know, they're really inspired by Mrs. Glessner, who did all these different things with, with their hands, that they're going to go home and try and make something. And, you know, that's a story that just resonates true today. Tomorrow, the Glesner House will be celebrating Frances Lee's legacy. They'll also be unveiling a recreation of one of her miniatures used to train law enforcement back in the day. You can head over, examine the model, and make your own guess as to what happened at the scene of the crime. More info in the show notes. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. The Park District is holding a town hall this evening at Fosco Park on the near west side. Now, the meetings are an effort to rebuild trust with both employees and visitors after reports and the internal watchdog reveal evidence of widespread abuse at parks, pools and beaches. It's the last day for students and young Chicagoans to check out the youth trade show at the McCormick Place where they can learn more about careers and skilled trade jobs. And of course, Willie Wilson is giving out a million dollars in free gas at nearly 50 stations in the Chicagoland area. If you sat in line, received gas, or were impacted by traffic, give us a call at 773-780-0246. Leave your name, the neighborhood you were in, and your story. To learn more about Wilson's political and philanthropic past, check out our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm slash newsletter. There's some good news to get you through. Earlier, we mentioned the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and this Friday and Sunday, you can see Jurassic Park at the orchestra. They're going to be playing the film in HD and John Williams' amazing score live. As always, I appreciate you for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Peace. There's a whole house named after her in the South Loop. <laughs>